Well, on your way in, you should have received a message note sheet. You can pull that out there, and we can, you can follow along in the, the message notes that way. We're beginning a new series today entitled Reawakening to Jesus. Reawakening to Jesus. So I'm going to test this first Sunday of the year. I'm going to give you a little history tour. Are you ready? I'm feeling confident in how rested and refreshed you are from your holiday week that you can engage with me starting in the year 1740, right? So here's a key year in the history of our nation spiritually. We're going to do a little spiritual history of our country for a few minutes. 1740, key figure is Jonathan Edwards. Here's a picture of Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor preaching in Northampton, Massachusetts, and Edwards was burdened with his congregation about the following. He felt that there was a movement within his people of them pursuing wealth and the pursuit of money and the desire to get rich. He saw in their hearts a desire for material things that was outpacing what he saw in their desire for Christ, and he was burdened about it. And so he began to preach into that, and he decided he's going to call the body together for a time of fasting and prayer, 1740, Northampton, Massachusetts. Let's get together. Let's pray. Let's fast. He kept preaching the word. He kept calling his people to prayer, and simultaneously, a man named George Whitfield from England arrived on the shores of Massachusetts. Here's a picture of George Whitfield. He started hosting, Whitfield did, he was an evangelist, he started hosting a new phenomena for America at that time, outdoor worship gatherings. He was literally crucified for doing this, like classically, right, in church circles when you kind of stretch out into a new method, eh, you know, all kinds of comments about it. Whitfield was pushing into new methods and he was gathering people together in outdoor venues and all of a sudden, hundreds turned into thousands. The largest gathering Whitfield had in 1740, in the fall of 1740, 23,000 people came together. You got to understand, way before anything like these microphones and amplified sounds, so you go, how in the world 23,000 people hearing? He stood downwind, and they said he had a set of lungs on him that could project. Could you imagine? It said 23,000 could hear very clearly the proclamation of the gospel that Whit Whitfield was giving. They said during the fall of 1740, he preached, hear this, 175 sermons in 75 days. I have no earthly idea how in the world that happened. 175 and 75, you do the math. <laughs> That's a lot of preaching. One Sunday in the fall of 1740, Whitfield started preaching, and he didn't stop for seven hours. Wait a minute, wait, hey, come on now. Seven hours, it said like, you know, you go to those concerts, right? And the, and the band finishes and they walk off the stage and what does everyone do? Well, today they get their phones out and turn their lights on, but right, we're cheering for an encore. We're like, I want more, we want more. And the band comes out and keeps playing. Whitfield kept doing that to the gathering for seven hours. Nothing even remotely like that has ever happened to me, I'm just telling you. Like at the end of a 30 to 40 minutes, like Whitfield, they're like, no, we want more. We're not done. Give us more. You can't be done yet. Preach it, pastor. Keep going, pastor. 
So this is the setting in the fall of 1740. It was said in New England, that whole general geographic area of our country, Massachusetts and the surrounding area, in 17, between 1740 and 1742, here's what it said. 80% of the population personally heard George Whitfield preach to them in person. 80%. Can you fathom that? He, was, he became known, George Whitfield became known as the first American celebrity. Well, Benjamin Franklin was alive at the same time. He was in his early 30s. Ben Franklin, not known as an overly religious person. But he started writing like, news reports about this like, spiritual awakening, about this religious fervor that was sparking up. He started writing about Whitfield's gatherings. And here in 1741... Here's what Ben Franklin wrote, quote, from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, hear this, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that no one could walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street, end quote. Huh. How about that? It seemed as if the whole world were growing religious. Would there be a little different commentary in 2021 at the moment? So historians mark 1740 to 1742, and here's the label they place on that era of our nation's history, the first great spiritual awakening in America, 1740 to 1742. Fast forward 60 years. We're now in the early 1800s. And another wave of spiritual awakening starts to begin, primarily in the New York City area. There's like, in the 1800s, there's this early wave in the early 1800s, and then there's a bigger wave started around 1857. Two key figures in 1857 in the city of New York, Charles Finney and Jeremiah Lanfear. So here's a picture of Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a businessman. Not a clergy member, not a revivalist, not a preacher. He was a businessman who had come to Christ, and he was burdened about his fellow businessmen finding this Christ that he had found and tasting this grace. And, and so he decided to get together whatever other businessmen wanted to meet together at noon during the week. Yeah, during the day, during the week in New York City, they met at this little church, North Dutch Church. There's a picture of North Dutch Church on Fulton Street in New York City. Jeremiah Lamphere, in the fall, in September of 1857, he gets together at 12 noon on a weekday and six other business guys show up. Businessmen. They take their lunch hour and they get together and they pray in this church. And a few weeks goes by, October 1857, the great financial crisis in New York City hits. This is when the banks start collapsing and this is when the railroads start going bankrupt. This is when the slavery question in our country really gets pressed to the surface. It looks like it's all headed towards civil war. It's like America was unraveling in every part, every far, part of it, like at the seams. America was just coming unravel on the brink of total collapse. Well, in the midst of that kind of financial crisis and, and the social economic crisis and all the other crises that were going on, well, this group of businessmen just kept praying. More and more people kept coming. More and more people kept coming. 
And by the end of October 1857, 10,000 businessmen and businesswomen were gathering at the noon hour in New York City to pray. 10,000. Obviously, that little church couldn't hold it. It spilled out into all these other churches, started hosting noonday prayer meetings. And then that rippled out across six months. It went out to other cities, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, began to host noonday prayer meetings led by the business community. It's like the clergy and the churches just became the host, but the real spiritual leadership was provided by the lay people. And they were on their faces before God. One man shows up at a prayer meeting in Boston, Massachusetts, and he says this. He says, quote, he stands up in a prayer meeting in Boston, Massachusetts at a noon hour. He's a business guy. He says, I'm from Omaha in Nebraska. On my journey east, I have found a continuous prayer meeting all the way. We call it the 2,000-mile prayer meeting. It's 1857. 2,000-mile prayer meeting. Here's a little sign that they had at their prayer meetings. I thought this was really poignant. So when you were to show up at these noon prayer meetings, sort of said, prayers and exhortations not to exceed five minutes in order to give all an opportunity. Not more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations. No controverted points discussed. Hmm. Seemed pretty poignant for today, huh? That was their focus. They're like, we're going to get together and pray. And we're going to give everybody an opportunity to pray. Now, listen, if you had hundreds and thousands of people coming together, and they generally kept it pretty tight, 12 to 1. And they said, at its peak, if you were to show up in Wall Street, 1857, 1858 at noon hour, you weren't going to get any business done at noon. Because all the leaders were in the church praying. I wonder what that would look like at Wall Street today. Conservative estimates say, between 1857 and 1860, a half a million Americans came to Christ. A half a million. And in this book, When the Fire Fell, George Davis, here's a picture of the book, and here's a quote I'm going to read from it. I commend this little book to you. It's a little pamphlet, not long, easy read, a great summary of the great revivals that have happened in our world. George Davis says this, the divine fire appeared, speaking about 1857 to 1860, in the most unlikely quarters. A large number of the aged were gathered in. <laughs> Lest those of us older think we're just going to leave it up to the young people. Listen to what happened. White-haired penitents knelt with little children at the throne of grace. That could only be written in the 1800s, right? If you get crucified, you'd write something like that now. White-haired penitents. Penitents is the word. Those who were repenting. Those who were falling on their face for God's mercy and grace on the darkness of their life. They had white hair. They had lived some life. They had gone down some roads. They said, no more. And children were leading them to grace. Whole families of Jews were brought to the Messiah. How radical is that? You know, the Jewish population is one of the most unreached corridors of our planet. And all these Jews were coming to Jesus. The most hardened were melted, some being led to Christ by the hand of a little child. 1857 to 1860, historians now mark this as the second great awakening in our nation. So near the end of Jeremiah Lamphere's life, remember this business guy who started this little prayer meeting, 
he decided to sit down and write a booklet kind of recapping the journey of all of this. The little booklet was called Alone with Jesus. There's a picture of the book here on the screen, and here's a summary of kind of his points. His summary as a, the book was kind of around that they, they wanted, he wanted to talk about. They weren't purpose-driven. They weren't prayer-driven. They were, hear this, person-driven movement, capital P. That Christ alone was their driving passion, Lamphere said. Four key points of his summary was Christ is the text. All preaching beside Christ is beside the text. Christ is the very foundation and subject matter of preaching. Preaching without Christ is building castles in the air. Christ is the life and the spirit of preaching. All preaching without him is like a body without life and spirit. Christ is the great end of preaching. Preaching is to manifest his glory. Church, that was 160 years ago. And I can't help but think that there's this growing sense going on in our nation today among the people of Jesus, among the church of Jesus. There's this growing sense that it's time. It's time for God's people to come together and unite our voices together and to lift up a cry for heaven to pour out the Spirit in a way that historians might look back on this era. And could it be that we begin to lay the seeds for the third great awakening for our nation? I believe it's so. I'm not alone in this. If you've been studying the evangelical landscape at all over the last couple years, there's many pastors, many spiritual leaders, many businessmen and business women who are coming together. I just read this week about, did you know in New York City this week, there was an all-night prayer gathering. And because New York has got so much COVID stuff going on, they couldn't do it in person. So this, this one pastor posted a screen, and it was literally just dozens and dozens of people that were praying for seven hours through the night in New York City from all different churches and all different backgrounds. And when I read about it and when I saw that, I said, hmm, that's, it looks a little bit like Jeremiah Lampier. Interesting, it was in the same city. And so I give all that to you as a backdrop to this. As we step into 2022, here's what we're going to be doing as a church. We're uniting with several hundred, conservatively, probably a thousand plus, other Christian and Missionary Alliance churches in the United States. We're uniting together for the next 40 days, and we're going to put this together. A 40-day, not it's a 40-day prayer focus, but it's not prayer-driven, as important as prayer is to be driven. It's not purpose-driven, as important it is to be clear about purpose and mission. It's a person-driven 40 days. Prayer is a means to a bigger end. And the title from our denominational president, John Stumbo, says we're going to gather under the banner of reawakening to Jesus. That the heart and desire of these 40 days would that the person and glory and majesty and wonder of all that God is for us in Jesus would just get bigger and bigger in all of our hearts. Let it be so, oh God. That's what these 40 days are about. And church, could it be? Could it be these become the seeds for another great awakening in our nation. And when you look at the circumstantial chaos of our country over these past few years, it sure seems to align when you study the history of the movement of God in peoples on our planet. I think we're set. 
And the question is, will we engage, will we enter all in with our hearts, our prayers, our devotion, our attention? And so this morning, so over these next six weeks, we're going to be looking at themes of reawakening to. Today, it's reawakening to the glory of Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and following up here on the screen. Here is the setting. About eight days after Jesus said this. Now, when he said, said this, he's referencing the paragraph just prior to it in Luke 9. And if you know your Bible well at all, if you know that chapter well, it's a very commonly quoted section of Luke 9. It's where Jesus is telling people, hey, if you want to find your life, if you're trying to like save your life, you're going to lose it. You know, to really find it, you're going to have to give it away. And actually, you can actually go through life and you can achieve a whole bunch of stuff and forfeit your very soul. It's that section. He's talking about how do you really find life versus lose it. So he he takes Peter, John, and James with him up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, underline that. When they became fully awake, underline that, they saw his glory, underline that, and the two men standing with him. So here's the context. It's Mount Hermon is where they believe they were making the trek up. If you've ever visited this part of the country, you know Mount Hermon is located at the intersection of where Israel and Jordan and Syria all meet today. It's where they all come together, excuse me, Lebanon, Syria, and Israel, where they all meet today. And there's the Sea of Galilee in the foreground. So that's Mount Hermon, the snow cap. It said it was a conservative, like 10 to 12 hour hike to get to the top of Mount Hermon. So Jesus is taking them on a long and strenuous 10 to 12 hour hike. And at the end of that, he calls a prayer meeting. Huh, how's that going to go? It's hard enough to get right focused attention at a prayer meeting at the end of a 10 to 12 hour hike. Hmm. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I want to focus on these three phrases that I had you underline. I want you to look in verse 32 at the trend, the connection between they were very sleepy to became fully awake to saw his glory. From weariness to awakening to glory. Say weariness. Weariness. Peter, James, and John, they were tired. They were tired. The kind of fatigue that sets in after a 12-hour hike up to 9,000 feet. That kind of weariness. And notice their weariness was hindering them from embracing what Jesus was trying to get them to embrace. He's trying to reveal his glory. It's going to be a significant moment here. And their weariness was kind of holding them back. They weren't able to see. And I don't know about you, maybe that's where the beginning of 22 finds some of you. That we just kind of in that state of a weariness that goes beyond any what a vacation can fix, kind of a soul level fatigue, the cumulative effects specifically of the last couple of years, right, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, some of you come into this year really, really exhausted and fatigued. That's this. That's Peter, James, and John right here at Mount Hermon. And Jesus addresses this kind of soul-level fatigue, I call it. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, here's what he says. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my soul upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I want you to see there in that verse, the words Jesus chose to use there in verse 28 for weary and burden, they really come out of this space of an exhaustion that's the result of hard work. When you've spent your mind, body, energy, soul, and effort, when you've spent it on something really labor-intensive, and you just don't have any energy left. It's that. That's the nature of the words he's chosen there. And I feel like metaphorically, you know, these past couple of years, it's been like a 12-hour hike up to 9,000 feet. If you've been in any leadership position, in any capacity, in any organization, you've definitely felt this. Because just when you thought like you'd kind of hit the precipice, like, okay, we kind of got to that plateau, we're good, we're going to kind of transition and make, you find out it was just a ridge and a gateway to a whole other section of the hike. Have any of you been on those hikes? Some of you are like the crazy hikers in this congregation. Some of you take vacations and you actually vacation in places where you go on like 12-mile hikes and call it recreation. I don't understand that, but okay. Some of you have been dropped off in air by airplanes where there's no civilization near you and no one coming for you for many days. And you hike and you hike. And there's a weariness to the mind, body, and soul in those kinds of places. And if you come into this year where you recognize, you know, a vacation isn't going to fix this. Have you ever gotten so fatigued that it's, a vacation isn't going to deal with it? The latest Netflix, whatever, you, you know, binge watching, that's not going to touch it. The new workout plan, nutrition plan, fast plan, whatever it is for 2022 plan, I am going to deal with it. There is a kind of weariness here that I think Jesus is speaking to that only he can address. Notice the text says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. It's, it's to Jesus that we bring this kind of like what Peter, James, and John, if they're going to see his glory, they've got to come to Jesus with this fatigue. The prayer meeting that he was calling wasn't the prayer, wasn't the end. And this is what we, when, as we call ourselves to prayer for these 40 days, it isn't about a call to prayer, as important as prayer is. It's about a call to a person. And the way you cultivate attentiveness to Jesus is practicing prayer. It's a means to a bigger end. The prayer meeting that Jesus was calling is that they might see his glory. Could it be that for us, church? It's not a reawakening to prayer. It's a reawakening to Jesus. That's what our nation is needing. That their eyes of their soul, the eyes of our soul, would be open to who they're standing there with on this mountain and what he was actually up to. But their weariness was getting in the way. And that might be where some of us need to start this prayer journey. We need to start by bringing our weariness to the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, I've looked in all kinds of other places of what to do with this kind of fatigue, the I'm spent, I'm done, I'm wiped out, I'm not sure how much more I can take type stuff. And Jesus says, you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And maybe that's your entry into these 40 days. You just bring your weariness and soul fatigue to Jesus and let him breathe his strength, his hope, and his grace into you.
Because the text says that, that, you know, they were asleep, they were not fully awake, right? They go from this stage in verse 32, where they go to this next phrase, when they became fully awake. Do you see that? That tells you they were quite drowsy. They were exhausted, it had been a long day. So from weariness to awakening, say awakening. And notice it's when they became fully awake in verse 32. Have you, have you encountered, if you haven't prayed much or prayed long for any length of time, you'll, you'll quickly learn this, like half awake and prayer don't go well together. I have found myself this past year falling asleep during my prayer times in ways like breathtakingly skilled at it. Like, it's unbelievable. I didn't know you could sleep in that posture. I like started kneeling and slobber puddle develops. I'm kneeling. I'm like, what in the world? Because when you're trying, like prayer takes energy. Prayer takes a focus. Prayer takes an attentiveness that you can't be like half in. You can't just be kind of casual about it. It's gotta, it requires a fully awake state. I reached out a couple years ago to a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist because I wanted to understand more of like the process of how like we wake up as a person. And I actually said to him when I was talking to him on the phone, I said, hey, doc, I, I know you put people to sleep, but I actually think you make your money waking them up. I said, you know, I mean, I, if I really go to you, I'd really appreciate it if you'd wake me up. He said, fair enough, fair enough. I said, so tell me the stages, like when you have a patient on your table and they're done with their procedure and they begin to wake up, what's that process like? And he outlined it this way, stages of waking up. He said, first stage is the eyes start to open, but they're looking in different directions. They're not focused. Second stage is the eyes start to fixate on something. They get alignment. And then third stage is there's an awareness of who they are and where they are. Focus, alignment, awareness. <laughs> That's not a bad grid. <laughs> That's a pretty solid grid for what reawakening looks like. So as I enter into this 40 days, I put in your notes some questions I'm asking myself. Perhaps you can ask yourself these or some others like it. I'm asking myself, where is God bringing things into focus in my life these days? What's becoming clearer to me? Focus. Alignment, what's coming into alignment? What are the things that maybe were looking scattered before, but, but God's doing a little bit of this. He's lining some things up. And then awareness. How's my awareness? First to Jesus. Like, how's my awareness, attentiveness to Jesus, to what he's doing, and to who I am in him? This is the awakening stage, church. If we bring our weariness to Jesus, we'll find that Jesus can do some focus, alignment, and awareness with us to begin to open our eyes to see who he is, who's standing there with us on this Mount Hermon and what he's about to do. I don't want to miss that, do you? I don't always got for 20. I don't want to miss Jesus in 2022. There's got to be an awakening. I like what Mark Batterson, I put this quote in your notes. He says, maybe we need to quit playing defense and start playing offense. Maybe we need to quit letting our circumstances get between us and God and let God get between us in our circumstances. I think that quotes for somebody here today. You come into 2022, you've got mountain-sized circumstances, and today is a call to why not let God step between you and those circumstances? That would be an awakening step. 
So it says, when they became fully awake, verse 32, what happened next? They saw his glory. So from weariness to awakening to glory. Say glory. So Jesus' physical appearance here changes. This had to be a crazy scene. It said it got so bright, it was like lightning. It was radiant. And then he starts having a conversation with guys who've been dead for a really long time. Elijah and Moses. That why do, by the way, Peter, James, and John would have studied a lot about Elijah and Moses. They would have taught a lot of classes, probably did a lot of discipleship stuff with these guys, like teaching about these guys. And they knew they'd been dead a really long time. And here they are having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus talks to, right, they have a conversation, and it says about the events that are to come, about his exit that's going to happen. Did you notice that in the text? He's the same word that's used in the book of Exodus about the Israelites' exodus from Egypt is the same word Jesus uses here in Luke 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's talking about his upcoming exit. You can't help but, can you see the parallel? He's talking with Moses. And so he's saying, hey, just like Moses led the Israelites out of captivity and slavery in Egypt, he led them into the promised land. He's saying, hey, Peter, James, and John, you're about to witness me. You're about to watch three really gut-wrenchingly difficult days. You're going to go through crucifixion Friday and silence Saturday and resurrection Sunday. You're going to be an eyewitness to that. And it's the same kind of exit. Like Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, I'm leading all peoples out of the land of sin and death and darkness. I'm going to do it. Now, you got to give Peter, James, and John a little bit of, you got to give them a, like, that'd be a lot to process. That'd be a lot to take in. You can't do that half asleep. That's not one of those half asleep conversations with God that we're going to have, right? And Peter's response tells us how much on Struggle Street he is with this whole thing, because look at verse 33, chapter 9, verse 33. As the men were leaving Jesus, here's Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love how Luke inserts this little parenthesis. Don't miss this little parenthesis. What does he say? He did not know what he was saying. <laughs> oh, I love the Bible. Are you kidding me? How many times do I feel like in my own prayer life, how many times I feel like, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit says, hey, Father, he doesn't know what he's saying. He... he he doesn't know what he's saying. Have you ever thought about all the prayers you've prayed that God didn't answer? And in the moment were so critically important that they'd be answered in your eyes and mine? And then years go by, and the, the little parenthesis that could be inserted in all those is, he didn't know what he was saying. The older you get, the more you rejoice in the prayers he didn't answer. Come on now. Am I the only one who feels that way? The older you get, the more you actually rejoice in the prayers he didn't answer because you recognize he was working on a plan and a circumstance situation you couldn't see. You were Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's revealing his glory. You're wanting to set up a tent and have a camp out, and Jesus is going to the cross. We didn't know what we were saying. That's how you know you're standing on glory ground, church. When God's up to something and you can't even put the words to it. I was up in the prayer room this morning, just kind of preparing my heart for this whole week, and 
just groans from my soul coming. I think it's glory. I can't put words to it, Lord. I don't know what you're doing, Lord. I don't see, I don't understand, but I know this. I know you are here, and I know you are with us, and I know you are able. And the word glory that he chose to use in Mark 9 is the common New Testament word doxa. It's in the Greek. I put it in your notes. It means a resplendent beauty. Check out this word, a magnificent that has a weight to it. I love that. So it's the glory of God that has the power and authority, hear this, to displace some things. Anybody need some things displaced in 2022? The glory of God can move some stuff. It has a weight to it. When the glory of God shows up, stuff starts moving. Like in Exodus 14, when the Red Sea parted and the Israelites crossed, the glory of God displaced the waters. In Joshua 6, when the walls of Jericho came down, it was the glory of God that shattered the bricks and the mortar. In Mark chapter 5, when the man's possessed by all these a legion of demons, it's the glory of God that displaced the evil spirits. And maybe you come into 2022, you need some waters to part, you need some walls to come down, you need some stuff displaced. And Jesus says, you bring your weariness to me. You let me open your eyes, awaken, awake my soul to see my glory. And that glory, church, can displace things. We need a revelation of the glory of Jesus. Not just in our own heart and in this body, in our nation today. If the glory of God doesn't show up and displace things, history tells us where this path goes. And so, church, today, I'm inviting us up Mount Hermon for 40 days. I'm inviting us, not in a call, just to prayer, as important as prayer is, not in a call just to a purpose, as important as purpose and mission is, but a call to a person. The glory being revealed in this text is the glory of a person. The awakening that's happening in this text is awakening to a person. The weariness that's addressed on the 10-hour hike up 9,000 feet is addressed by a person. It is a person unlike any other person, church, I have ever met in my life. And listen, at the beginning of a new year, we all sit down, we reflect, it's a good thing to do, and to think about our priorities, and to think about our plans, and we think about our relationships, and we think about the importance of, hey, we want to see this relationship grow and strengthen and deepen this year. That's a good thing to do. But as I was thinking about it this week, you know, I said, Lord, of all the relationships, I've got to go deeper. You're in a category unto yourself. You, the relationship with you, King Jesus, the priority with you, that's got to be at the top of the stack. And so I wonder, church, as we step into this year, I wonder if God wants to shift some things around. I wonder if he wants to align some things, order some things, awaken some things. And the call, it's all addressed by a person, capital P. The worship team, why don't you come on back up as I draw this to a close. Transition us to the communion table. But I want to do so with a quote um, 
I think I have it up, up here on the screen. Our country, you know, has a spiritual history. I started us in 1740. I took us to 1857, and now I land us in 2021. Just this week, a pastor in New York City wrote these words, quote, When in the course of human events there lies such a heavy sense of injustice and despair over the proliferation of evil and the failure of any forces for good to carry the sentiment of the day, there remains only one answer, revival. This has been the experience of men and women throughout history, as the biblical record testifies. Hear this, the time is again ripe for that outcry to heaven for mortals who sense that things have gotten out of hand, that the forces of sin, evil, and destruction are beyond our ability to contain, end quote. It's time, church. It's time for Jesus' people to come together and with a united voice an outcry to heaven for a wide-sweeping movement of the Spirit that history could only record and say, that's a great spiritual awakening. And it starts right here. Right here. And it may start in a place of weariness. Or it may be, if you were honest, have been just like half asleep, drowsy, distracted. Might need to be awakening. I just got to stir some stuff up. But at the end of the day, we got to see the glory. The glory that has weight to displace to move stuff. And so church, it's Communion Sunday, this first Sunday of the year. And these elements, they represent a person. A person whose body was broken for you, for me. A person whose blood was shed for you, for me. This is about a person. And so when we come to the table this morning and we take the elements, we do so in this posture of, Jesus, take me up Mount Hermon. Refresh, strengthen, awaken. I want to see your glory. Display some stuff, Lord. And you literally, the act of communion, you internalize. It's amazing, right? This with Jesus life. You actually, the body and the blood, you internalize. This is a Christ in you. You in Christ. This is that. So maybe you're here this morning, you've never taken communion. And you can do that for the first time. The step is you just give your heart to Jesus. Communion is reserved. The table is set for those who are his children, who've made a decision. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And this is an act of worship to that end. And so in just a moment, I'm going to lead us through a prayer. And you can pray and give your heart to Christ. And then you can take some elements. They're there at the back table. If you didn't get it on your way in in a moment, you'll have some time to do that. There's some gluten-free options at the end of the table as well. You don't have to be a member here to take communion here. Um, you're welcome as a part of the family of Jesus. And our prayer benches, just like every Sunday, but specifically on Communion Sunday, they are open. They're open to you to come. Maybe there's something God stirred this morning. You just want to come and kneel and pray and seal some things between you and him. This is your space. 
Or maybe you've got some things you need God to touch and heal physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. You come for healing and we anoint you with oil and pray for healing because Jesus said by his stripes we're made whole. And so as we take these elements, we trust for his wholeness in a complete way. And as we step into these 40 days, weariness, awakening, and glory. Come, come, Spirit, let it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're alive. We speak to a person, the resurrected Christ, here by your Spirit, listening we get to open up these texts that you've preserved to us that talk about these stories that draw our hearts to you. And so maybe there's someone here, maybe this morning, the first time, you're just having some clarity that you've never given your heart to Christ and become a Christian. Maybe you've known about Jesus stuff, but today it's got to get personal. And you can just in the quietness of your heart right now and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Save me. I recognize I've been distracted. I've been caught up in all kinds of things. I've been going down all kinds of road, but I come to you and I declare you my Savior and my Lord right now. Come forgive me, heal me, fill me, strengthen me. I take these elements as an act of worship. Recognizing your body was broken for me and my sin. Your blood was shed for me and my sin. Would you just collectively, we just offer, we offer collectively these 40 days to you and we simply say, have your way. Have your way. Awaken us. That it might ripple out to a nation that needs the glory of Jesus to display some stuff. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.